So Acts chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. As he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. 
He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way, rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, one of the big themes that comes across in Scripture and that theologians often take note of is a theme where Christ is the victor, or the one who gives Christians the victory over, well, over really everything, but primarily over the spiritual realm. And uh, technically, this is called Christus Victor. And in other parts of the church outside of the West, a lot is made of this theme. But here in the West, my hunch is, is that for some of us who've been coming to church for a while, we would never have heard much preaching on this. And particularly, it's not a very popular theme here. And a lot of the reason for that is because, as we're frequently told, we're becoming a more secular society. And so the idea of spiritual opposition, spiritual rulers and authorities, we're kind of modern people. We can't believe in that, can we? I mean, Jesus is the one who will help me achieve psychological health. Yeah, that's great. Jesus is the one who might bring community together. We can understand that. But Jesus is the one who would push back on the dark forces of the spiritual realms. Really? Not sure about that. But one of the things when you look into the so-called secularism hypothesis is that we're not as secular as, I suppose, some of the headlines would have us believe. For example, um, in 2013, Theos, who are a think tank connected to the Bible Society, did a large-scale survey of spiritual opinions of people in the general population and found that 59% of people would say that they believe in some kind of general spiritual force or essence in the world. That's very high. I mean, well over half of people are basically saying that they don't believe that secularism explains everything. Push into those stats a little bit more, and both sides of the Atlantic, both in the UK and also in the US, you'll find that when you push into the categories of those who declare on a census or a survey to be not religious, you'll find that a large percentage of that not religious category, typically a third of people within that category, would say they are spiritual but not religious, which has led to sociologists talking about the SBNR um, cohort, which is spiritual but not religious. 37% in the US, 33% in the UK of those who say they have no religion, no religious affiliation would say they are spiritual. Push into a little bit further, you'll find that the fastest growing genre um, of film in Hollywood is the horror genre, particularly the supernatural and paranormal um, part of the horror genre. So we have a great obsession with it. 
And as you look around a little bit more, you'll see there's been a significant growth in new age or alternative spiritualities. So what it seems to be happening is that as we've rejected more traditional religions, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism being the big four, as we've pushed back on those, then actually what we've done is we've located ourselves more in the rise of alternative spiritualities. And so we're not really as secular as we think. Now, we've got a mixed congregation here, over 25 nationalities at the last count. So for some of you, you'll be saying, finally, the West is realizing that secularism doesn't add up, that it's not coherent as a worldview. Others for us who've grown up in the West will be saying, well, I'm not sure what to make of all this. Well, one of the things that this passage is doing is it's putting on our plate, if you like, and confronting us with the reality of spiritual opposition. That's where we're going to start. First of all, the reality of spiritual opposition. Look down at how plainly the passage talks about it in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city." We've had over the last few weeks a kind of increasing persecution of God's people, the early church. And back in chapter 5, we're intended to see behind this, spirit, this um, persecution is a spiritual opposition. So in chapter 5, verse 3, when we're dealing with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, the apostle Peter sees straight through it, beyond, if you like, the psychological factors merely, and sees there's a spiritual dimension to it. Chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land. Notice he's not saying that Ananias is devoid of responsibility. He's a moral agent. He's acting with a moral will. He's culpable. But behind that culpability, there is also another agent to play, Satan. Not the caricatures that we stupidly make up, but rather the real personal force of evil in this world um, the one who opposes everything that God stands for and commands an army of spiritual forces who stand up against God and oppose everything that Jesus Christ and his church stand for. And Peter says, he's behind this. And so as the persecution then happens in chapter 7 and chapter 8 particularly, we're intended to see behind it is spiritual opposition. And so as Philip goes into this Gentile, this non-Jewish area, verse 5 of Samaria, there we are intended to see that there's a confrontation of spiritual power going on here. The authentic gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ goes into this region and it comes straight up against the wall of opposition, of spiritual opposition, spiritual realities. And yet, as we'll see very clearly, there's only going to be one winner. Now what do you make of this? Well, I think one of the things we're intended to draw from this is that our understanding of the world is incomplete unless we factor in the spiritual. There's a book that's uh, written not so long ago called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil by a professor at Columbia University called Andrew Del Bonco. He himself is a secular liberalist, so he wouldn't necessarily be coming from a supernatural point of view. But listen to what he writes about the necessity of understanding the world according to the spiritual dimension. He writes, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes 
and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has got harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. What's he saying? He's saying that you'll never really understand the world. You'll always be naive to the reality of what you are facing and experiencing and dealing with in the world when you look at the headlines and when you look at your lives if you don't take into account the reality of real evil in the world, the reality of spiritual opposition and spiritual forces in the world. You can't psychologize it or socialize it and just explain it away. There are things that happen in this world that are not fully explicable on the basis of psychological factors and dysfunction or sociological causality. There is real evil in the world. For some of us, that's uncontroversial. For others, that's a wake-up call. Think about your own life. Why is it that so often when things seem to be going well, that just around the corner there seemed, you seem to hit a wall of opposition, an intangible force of things in your life? And you're wondering, where does this come from? Why is it so collected against me at this point? Think about your experience within the church. Why is it that as you step out on mission in the church, the normal experience is pushback? Pushback from people, but also just a sense of intangible pushback, things going wrong, accidents happening to people. Why is it that Christians find it so difficult to pray and read the Bible when those are the two things which God has given us supremely as great resources for growth? Why does it feel sometimes like wading through treacle? Well, could it be that there is someone or something or rather a cohort of spiritual forces that don't want you to do that? Why is it that just as the church starts getting united and growing that some sin will rise up and you're suddenly having to deal with it? Where does that come from? And why do the thoughts that sometimes come from your own heart so surprise you think, where did that come from? You dare not share it with anyone. You're thinking it's so distorted. It seems to have come from within you, but you're thinking this hasn't been socially or psychologically caused. Where does it come from? You will not understand yourself. You'll always be a stranger to yourself, and the world will not be fully explicable to you if you don't take into account the reality of spiritual opposition. The devil is real. His cohort of forces who stand against the gospel are real. We must not be naive. Secondly, though, we need to realize that whilst they are real, notice the power of the gospel over spiritual opposition. Because notice, as Philip enters into the area in Samaria, verse 7, with shrieks and pure spirits come out of many, and many who are paralyzed or lame were healed. There's a confrontation, but there's only one winner. The gospel of Jesus Christ clearly drives out these demons and deals with the impure spirits there. And we're intended also, as we come to this fascinating character, Simon Magus, let's say he wouldn't win any prizes for modesty. Look at verse 9. He boasted that he was someone great. And that led to his name in church history being Simon Magus, Magus being the great one. So Simon, what's your name? Well, I'm Simon, but you know, my friends call me the great one. Oh, well, winning prize for modesty today, are we? But then look at verse 10. All the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. So here is a Samaritan. Here is a man who in many societies would be called a witch doctor. He's a sorcerer. He's one who can exercise a degree of power over the spiritual realm. And verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Let me just say a couple of things. We read this, and as secular Westerners, we often go, okay, but it was just he was doing a bit of um, sleight of hand. 
You know, there was smoke and mirrors going on. He didn't really do sorcery. Pete, you're not asking me to believe that sorcery actually happens now. What, is this the magician's apprentice or something? And you're waiting for that kind of the masked magician to appear. You know, the one who reveals the secrets of those in the magic circle and shows us how it's really done? That is not what is going on here. There's no hint of it. Luke is a careful historian, and he wants us to be clear. This man had some degree of power over the spiritual realm. But notice, when it comes to a comparison between him and Philip, there is no comparison. And indeed, these verses are definitely set up so that we would see the comparison. So verse 6, we're told they pay close attention to Philip in Samaria. And just as in verse 10, all people, both high and low, gave Simon their attention. See the same word. Verse 6, Simon was, impressing by Philip's, uh, was impressed by Philip's signs. And verse 11, the crowds followed Simon because he had impressed them with his sorcery. But then look at the difference. Verse 9, Simon amazed the Samaritans with his sorcery. But look at verse 13. Simon himself becomes amazed, same word, by the signs that Philip does. In other words, Simon, if you like, is the strongest spiritual figure in the Samaritan subculture, and yet when he comes into contact with the gospel and with real spiritual power by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no contest. If this is a heavyweight contest, it's all over in the first 30 seconds of round one. There's only one winner. Now, there are two dangers when we talk about spiritual opposition. The first danger is we are naive to it and we don't talk about it. And that is probably our danger here, maybe in this church or maybe in the West. But the second danger is that as we start to talk about it and as we start to think there are real spiritual forces, Ephesians chapter 6 calls them spiritual powers and rulers and authorities. They must be very powerful, more powerful than I can actually face myself. The real danger then is we become overly concerned, overly fearful, and we start to talk about it as though it's some kind of cosmic dualism, a battle between good and evil, and we're not quite sure which way it will go. Will God win or will the devil win? That is not the Bible's view. The Bible's view is there is spiritual opposition, but it's all over. The counter's been gone. Ten, he's been knocked out. Jesus defeats Satan on the cross, and we're intended to see that so that Philip, who's not even an apostle, he's just an ordinary believer. The most we know about Philip so far is that he's one of those people who was chosen in Acts chapter 6 for being a man full of the Spirit, and so chosen with distributive, administrative, strategic gifts to help with the distribution of bread amongst the Jewish and uh, Greek Christians. So there's nothing special about him. We're not intended to marvel at Philip as though he's, you know, kind of a sorcerer mark too. Nothing like that at all. He's a normal believer. But the point is, if you have Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, there is no competition when it comes to the spiritual realm. You need not fear. Jesus is the one who defeats them. And so if one danger is being naive to it and not talking about it, the other danger is not realizing that the victory has already been won that it is so easy for Jesus and his gospel that even a man like Simon, the self-acclaimed great one, bows down and himself becomes a Christian because he recognizes the true power and true authority of the gospel. Now, we'll come back to what's happening with the delayed coming of the Holy Spirit in verses 15, 17, but let's just move on next to the danger of, therefore, of mixing the gospel with other spiritualities. I've been umming and ahhing about verses 18 to 25 over the course of the last week. I'm really not sure what they're there to do, and the commentators have been absolutely no help at all. They mostly miss them out. 
So um, I've been thinking about it, and I wonder if, I'm going to give this to you, but do come and chat to me afterwards. Sometimes in the Bible you think things are quite clear, other things are not so clear. One of the great Proverbs is, it's the glory of a king to seek a matter out, it's the glory of God to conceal it. Sometimes God does conceal things in a measure so that we can work hard at Scripture. And I wonder if that's going on in verses 18 to 25, or maybe it's really obvious to you and I'm just missing it, but there we go. I wonder if this is showing us the danger of mixing the gospel with alternative or other spiritualities. So Simon is genuinely converted. We get that. He believes and is baptized in verse 13. And yet, something happens such that he clearly hasn't really grasped what the gospel is all about. Because look at what happens verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying, hands, laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So what does he want? He's basically saying, there's this new great spiritual power. You've got it. I want it. And if I get it, I can monetize that and I could be really rich with it. I mean, I'm doing all right so far, but give me that. I'm really going to rake it in. I mean, look, before we jump on the bandwagon, some people do and say, well, he clearly wasn't converted. You haven't spent long around people who are newly converted, right? Um, Nicky Cruz, who wrote the uh, biography, The Cross and the Switchblade, about his life of uh, being a gang leader, and then he was converted. When he was first converted, he decided he was going to become the best gang leader for Jesus Christ. He hadn't quite grasped the full implications of sanctification, right? It's often the case. Neither had Simon. But he needs to get it because you cannot bring in any other worship into the true worship of Jesus Christ. To put it this way, you either have Jesus Christ as your all, or you do not have Jesus Christ at all. He must be your all and your everything, or you don't have him at all. He will not have rivals or peers, and that includes trying to add in a little bit of new age, alternative spirituality. So Simon cannot both worship Jesus Christ and continue to live like a Sumerian witch doctor. It won't work. It's all or nothing. And so Peter, the Apostle Peter responds, verse 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God. He's saying it's not earning, it's about grace. It's completely opposite to what you're thinking, Simon. Verse 21, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness, literally full of poison and captive to sin. He's saying, you haven't worked it out. You're still captive to a wrong way of thinking, captive to sin. And because of that, there's a poison in you, Simon. And if you don't get rid of it in the power of the gospel, it will destroy you. And wonderfully, verse 24, Simon, in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, repents. Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Can I say that is a mark of authentic spirituality? Not that you get everything perfect, but that when you're confronted with the reality of your sin and the areas in which you are not making Jesus Christ your all and everything, you repent, and so he does. And so we have nothing but, I suppose, thankfulness to God for the fact that he caused a spirit of repentance in Simon. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, the danger of mixing alternative spiritualities with Christianity is as prevalent today as it has ever been. Let me identify four trends of alternative spiritualities, which you can see why they're so attractive, because they pick up on trends in the world. One is a universalist trend. That is to say, not that Jesus is the only way, that's far too unpopular, particularly in our tolerant age, but say Jesus is a way, 
Ultimately, all paths lead to God, and there are many different spiritualities and many different gods. So Jesus never says he's the way, apart from those unfortunate verses, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's just gloss over those. He meant to say, when he was being politically correct, I'm a way, and you can have many ways. Universalism. So we mix it into our Christianity. And so you'll find lots of churches saying, you can have Jesus, and you can also have other spiritualities. Mix them in, it's fine. It's not fine. Peter would say, repent of this wickedness, this poison. It'll destroy you. Universalism is one. The other one is individualism. We love to individualize Christianity. So particularly the work of the Holy Spirit in many churches is made as though he's some kind of the stuntman, the one who brings the excitement and the jazz and the, you know, the kind of good feeling into the Christian life. And no doubt there is an element in which the Spirit is there to reassure the believer of their salvation. The love of God shed abroad in the heart of a believer is a wonderful thing. But notice he's the Holy Spirit. His great agenda is holiness to conform you to the likeness of God, to teach you to obey all that he has commanded. You'll find that that gets curiously neglected despite the fact that it's in the Great Commission. So how you can miss it is quite interesting. The Holy Spirit is not the one there to serve our needs and make us feel good only. He's the one to grow us into the likeness of Christ. So universalism, individualism, relativism is another one, where it's fine for you to talk about you and your Jesus, your personal belief, but don't go out on mission trying to convert people and trying to share the gospel with people. That's not politically correct at all. So rein that in. Let's just have a, a huddle of feeling good about ourselves, but let's not try to take any message out there. We can do good works, but we keep the message in here, relativism. So we have universalism, we have individualism, we have relativism, and we have impersonalism as well, where we make the faith very impersonal. So the Holy Spirit, when that happens, doesn't become he, as he's revealed to us, he becomes an it, an impersonal force that you can kind of conjure or manipulate, and certain people have particular power to welcome into the presence of the, uh, of the congregation, and we experience him, and then he mysteriously leaves at the end of the gathering again, like a force or like a, a wind you can kind of waft in and waft out. He's not. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's the sovereign Lord. He does what he pleases. He blows wherever he chooses. You can no sooner control him than you can control a tornado. Get down from your arrogance. He's God worship him, bow down before him. But don't you dare think you can put him in a box and control him. Again, not so popular. Universalism, relativism, individualism, impersonalism. And it's interesting that when you look at these, Oprah Winfrey is talking a lot about this. Now, before we scoff, she has 25 to 30 million followers every week, and these are the tenets of her so-called new religion. She talks about Jesus a lot as a way, as a guide, a guru, someone who gives her strength. And she encourages lots of other people to think that way. But don't be narrow. Don't try and proselytize people. She is the self-declared great high priestess of this religion. Whether you follow her or not, the influence of this is coming across the Atlantic and into our churches here. We must avoid it. Remember, unless you have Jesus as your all, you do not have Jesus at all. All. Peter would say to us graciously, lovingly and truthfully, verse 23, I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Repent. Turn back to the authentic faith as revealed in Scripture. Now, that leads us to the fourth point, the final point, the way that God uses spiritual opposition. 
Because notice that despite all of the backdrop of spiritual opposition in these passages, God's purposes are still being accomplished. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we're told that Jesus' great agenda is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. That's the mission. Now here we've got great opposition. We've just had in chapter 7 the first Christian martyr. We get here spiritual opposition as Philip enters into a new area. And yet what is happening? Well, notice it's not even just in spite of opposition that God is still achieving his purposes. It's actually through the opposition. God is so sovereign and so majestic that he uses the opposition to accomplish his great purposes. So look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. There's a lot behind that word scattered. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to be in the early church and to be scattered at this point. You've barely come together as a few believers for a few months. You're trying to figure out this Jesus thing and the scriptures and what they teach about it. You're clinging together with one another because you're getting opposition right, left, and center. You're thrust together. You love one another. You've lived all your life in Jerusalem. And then suddenly there's this vicious persecution. People are being killed. The terror, the fear. And suddenly you have to flee. You have to go to different regions because if you're discovered, you're going to be killed. So you're all alone. There's maybe just a few of you now. You're no longer under the apostles' teaching. So how are you going to figure it all out? You feel isolated. You feel small. You feel weak. And in that context, God is working through you, verse 5, to accomplish his purposes. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, from Jerusalem, first stage, to Judea, out of Jerusalem, second stage. Where next? Samaria. And where are they going? Samaria. It would not have felt like they were accomplishing God's purposes. They would have felt weak and pathetic and overawed, and yet through them at that moment, such is God's sovereignty, he's working out his plans. And the reason, I think, as we now come to those tricky verses in verses 15 to 17, that we get this delayed giving of the Spirit to the Samaritan believers is because it was just so surprising for the Jewish Christians to get that despite God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, despite God's repeated prophecies in the Old Testament, despite seeing Jesus himself see the faith of Gentile Christians like the centurion in Luke chapter 7, despite Jesus taking the gospel to areas that were non-Jewish areas, Gentile areas, the apostles just did not get this. They were so caught up in their way of thinking about ethnic purity that the idea of the gospel going to the Samaritans was just so counterintuitive to them, they couldn't get it. So I think this delayed giving the Holy Spirit is for the benefit of Peter, Look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And it's Peter who in chapter 10 is going to have a vision of the giving of the gospel to the Gentiles. Three times he has to get the vision to get it. And then it's Peter who's going to testify to the other apostles in chapter 11 that the gospel really has gone and been given to the Gentiles and they've got the Holy Spirit. They're authentic believers. And so I think this is very important for Peter to see that when he arrives... Verse 15, they prayed for the new believers, and he sees the Holy Spirit come on them, and they are baptized. In other words, he gets a unique, once-in-a-lifetime affirmation that the gospel really has gone to the Samaritans, so he gets it. I say unique because it's not repeated in Scripture, and so unfortunately, it's very unfortunate that lots of false doctrines have been preached on the back of this one passage. Golden rule of Scripture is that if you come to a narrative passage that is descriptive, 
you are very tentative to apply prescriptions on the base of a description. There are passages that prescribe, that say very clearly what you must do and what the doctrine is. And there are passages that are more vague. This is vague. And two big heresies that come out of this is a charismatic one, that actually some believers are filled with the Spirit and some believers aren't, and therefore you get some believers who are, if you like, the Samaritans before Peter arrives, and other believers haven't got the Spirit yet, and they then can be filled with the Spirit if they pray for the gift of tongues or something. Actually, Rebecca and I were at a church just a few weeks ago when someone turned to Rebecca and said, have you been saved? And Rebecca said, praise the Lord, yes, I know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they said, have you received the Holy Spirit? And Rebecca looked a bit perplexed, and she said, I, well, I just said I've been saved, so yes. And they said, but do you speak in tongues? She said, uh, well, no, it's not a gift that I have. Well, then you haven't been filled with the Spirit, they said. It's still around. It's false doctrine, heresy, because it very clearly says in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit, you have been filled with the Spirit, whether you can speak in tongues or not. There's a Catholic heresy that corresponds to this, which is that the priest, or Roman Catholic heresy, that the priest has to lay hands on believers for them to be filled with the Spirit. So it's like the charismatic heresy, it just elevates the place of the priest in doing it as well. Both the false doctrines, both are not true. This was a one-time deal because of the uniqueness of the gospel going for the first time to the Samaritans and for the affirmation of Peter and his confirmation, so that he knew what had happened. But the main point is the gospel went to the Samaritans, praise the Lord, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and we come now briefly to the Ethiopian eunuch, because of course the Ethiopian is intended to symbolize and pick up on the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. That's why you get that rather strange reference at the end of verse 27. He was in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. It's basically drawing the link between 1 Kings 10. And 1 Kings 10 is one of the great high points of the Old Testament when we start to see God's purposes of Jerusalem and uh, the Jews being a blessing to all nations coming to fruition. When the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon and sees him in all his wisdom and godly splendor, and she herself is blessed by him. And it's just a foretaste of the gospel going to the nations. And here we get the first convert after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from outside of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the Ethiopian. Worth saying a few things about this man. He's a eunuch because he's made the conscious choice to sacrifice his rights and his potential for a family for his career. So in order to be a treasury official in the Ethiopian and in many ancient societies, you had to become a eunuch to be castrated so that you could be trusted, so that you had your full devotion. So he has basically sacrificed much on the altar of his work. Sounds like some people you know. And yet, he has come to believe in the God of Scripture. And so he is making a two and a half thousand mile journey from northern Ethiopia to Jerusalem. But we can infer from what he's reading, and we can infer from what we know of the temple then, from the rest of Scripture, what would have happened when he got to Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but I'm reckoning it goes something like this. He would try to enter the courts at Jerusalem. He would be turned away because he was not only a Gentile, but he was a eunuch, and therefore he could not enter the temple courts. So he's traveled two and a half thousand miles for once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage. He's not even allowed to the temple. He wants to worship God in the place that Scripture reveals God should be worshipped, and he's turned away. Can you imagine the humiliation, the sense of 
pain, the sense of waste. So why he's reading Isaiah 53, I don't know. I mean, it is a high point of Scripture. But could it be that as he read verse 33, it chimed with him? In his humiliation, he, that is Messiah, was deprived of justice. He's just been humiliated, and he must feel a profound sense of injustice. And he reads of this Messiah, this kingly figure, this servant, and he reads who can speak of his descendants, and he knows he will never have any descendants. He sacrificed them for his career. His life was taken from the earth, and he's now contemplating the life he's going back to. And as he exercises that ancient tradition of reading scriptures aloud, Philip, prompted by the Spirit, comes alongside him and hears him reading Isaiah 53. And Philip, like all good evangelists, knows an opportunity when he sees one. He thinks, this is an absolute sitter. If I can't score this, I'm missing an open goal. And so he draws alongside the eunuch. And the eunuch says, tell me please, verse 34, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? The best question ever. Tell me the gospel. Wonderfully, Philip does. Oh, could you imagine? As Philip explains to him that this Messiah figure had no descendants, not because he had sacrificed them on the altar of his career, but because he was prepared to sacrifice himself on the altar for your sake and for mine. When he explained to the Ethiopian eunuch that the humiliation of Jesus Christ was not just that he was turned away from a one-time deal in the temple, but that he was turned out of the Father's presence in the temple courts forever. So that on the cross, he experienced the cosmic separation from God, experiencing that humiliation as he had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we all can come in. So that in him, we might be accepted. We might be welcomed into the true temple, the temple of Jesus' body and the body of believers when he learned that his life was taken away so that we might have life. And when he saw that through Jesus Christ and his humiliation, real victory over the spiritual powers was achieved, such that Jesus is now victorious and reigns over all spiritual rulers and authorities, as he said that to the eunuch, don't you imagine his pupils dilated, and no wonder that he said, here is water, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? Baptize me, he says. I want this. I believe in this. I'm trusting in this. And so the eunuch is converted, and the gospel, we just get a little hint, goes to the ends of the earth. And so what can stop the power of the gospel? What can stop the march of Jesus Christ? What can stop the work of the Holy Spirit and the mission of God? Can spiritual powers or rulers and authorities? No, nothing can stop them. And the only response is that which we see in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Joy, joy, rejoicing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gospel, this gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ was on that Good Friday, separated from you, so that we might be joined with you in eternity through him. This gospel that you have conquered and defeated the spiritual powers, rulers and authorities, making a public spectacle on them, triumphing over them by the cross and your blood, so that now we know where real spiritual power lies. Help us therefore not to be naive about the spiritual realities we face. Help us not to be fearful, but to trust in you. And we ask that you would give us that joy of salvation as we do so. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.